You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA. This is Mike Adams sitting in this week for the rest of the week as we make the big transition here on AOA. First, I want to say congratulations to Mike Pearson for his new job, and we wish him the very best. think he's going to do great. You're going to be seeing and hearing a lot of Mike. And a special congratulations to Jesse Allen, who will be the new host here of AOA starting on Monday. Wish Jesse the very best. And uh, I think you hear a lot of great things with Jesse as he covers agriculture here on AOA. So wish them both the very, very best. So I'll be with you the rest of the week here in this transition period for the program. Looking forward to uh, talking with quite a few guests about some very important topics. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up on our program, we're going to talk biofuels with Donnell Rehagen with Clean Fuels Alliance America. We'll talk market issues with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. And we're going to talk about the, the beef industry a little bit later with Daryl Peel, Dr. Daryl Peel from Oklahoma State University. But speaking of the beef industry, let's start the program off right there because there's a big beef industry meeting going on, summer meeting going on in San Diego. And joining us right now is Ethan Lane, who is the Vice President Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, thank you for joining us. How's the meeting going? Big turnout? You know, we have the biggest crowd I think we've had in at least five years for this summer meeting. So a great start here in San Diego. Uh, producers from all across the country. And, you know, of course, this is our policy meeting. So this is the folks that are here, not just to, to go to fun events and concerts, but to actually sit in conference rooms and do work for a couple of days and, and update those policy books. Ethan, I would think a big topic of conversation is this growing uh uh, cell-based meat industry that's out there and seemingly is uh, is expanding. How big a challenge do your producers feel this is? Well, you know, we're not afraid to compete with anything in the marketplace. And, and you're right, it has been a big topic of discussion here in San Diego this week. But I think the conversation has really been focused here on the technical aspects of what should this stuff be called in the marketplace? You know, given the fact that they're growing it in a bioreactor and harvesting cells and, and, and you know, creating this kind of, uh, uh, you know, lab-derived meat product or, or, or meat alternative, um, what does that mean for the marketplace? What does it mean in the, in the store shelves? And we know right now these two chicken products that have come to market aren't going to be hidden like, you know, we've seen with some plant-based products. Uh, on store shelves. They're, they're going to be very loudly and proudly touted because they're trying to raise more money for research and development. So it's a longer term problem, but now's the time to be talking about how to label them, how to make sure that customers and consumers in the marketplace know what they're getting um, and, and set that table now. So that's been a lot of the conversation around here this week is kind of the technicalities of, of, of how you put a label on a meat package. Yeah, that's really the key, isn't it? To, to eliminate consumer confusion and to let them know if they're going to make that, when they make that choice at the meat case, make sure they know, have the education, have the uh, accurate information about what they are choosing. Exactly. It, it's, it's really critical. And, and, you know, this is such a different conversation than plant-based. Plant-based is pretty easy, right? They, they put a slurry of these different, you know, ingredients into, a, into a, an extruder and, it, and out comes a, a patty that is intended to look kind of like a beef patty. Um, this is a completely different environment, and that's a lot of what we've talked about this week is you almost have to kind of throw out a lot of what you were thinking on the plant-based side in order to think about how the labeling should work on the, on the cell, cell meat side. We're talking with Ethan Lane. He's Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. He's at the big summer beef industry meeting going on in San Diego. Ethan, more challenges again to the uh, to the beef checkoff and checkoffs overall. Uh, what's being discussed about that challenge? Well, there's obviously a lot of discussion around this building this week on the checkoff, given that there's a lot of discussion in the, in, in D.C. this week on, on the checkoff. You know, we we tend to always have this meeting during that last week of Congress before August recess. So my team is sort of one foot in each world as we're moving through these meetings this week. But, you know, given some of the attacks on the checkoff that we've seen uh, most recently from Victoria Sparks from, uh, from Indiana, uh, a soybean farmer who, as we understand it, just doesn't want to pay the soybean checkoff anymore. So she's 
trying to defund all checkoffs through the Ag Appropriations Bill. But um, unfortunately, the, the, the language that she submitted for that process um, would bar federal funding from being used for checkoffs. But we don't use any federal funds on checkoffs. Uh, those are those are producer funded and driven uh, initiatives. So um, a little bit a little bit off the mark, but uh, nevertheless, uh, the intent, as, as she has reaffirmed in the press and elsewhere, is to attack the checkoffs. So um, a lot of conversation, obviously, about that, as I believe is happening in 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 other ag commodity uh, circles, talking about this, since you have so many of those checkoff programs and so many things that are important to producers around the country under attack right now up on Capitol Hill. Well, obviously, not all producers are happy with the checkoffs. Not all support it. But does the research still show, does polling still show that the majority of producers support the checkoff? Oh, the vast majority of producers support the checkoff. And, and, you know, we have that research that, that, you know, even years ago, 70 plus percent were in favor of it. And I think the, the more recent statistic that's, that's, that's relevant is when you think about the fact that just about 18 months ago, there was a challenge uh, to the to the beef checkoff that was that was uh, initiated in the form of a of a petition that was open for 18 months, looking to get you know enough signatures to trigger a referendum in the beef checkoff in every sale barn and every available spot in the country, and and that that effort uh, fell far short of 10 percent of producers signed on, and I think that speaks volumes about the fact that that producers across the country um, had that put in front of them repeatedly over 18 months and and chose not to sign it. That that speaks to their their uh, level of satisfaction with the checkoff overall and, and, and where they think it's going and the work that they believe it's doing. So we'll see where this latest challenge uh, leads to. Uh, I want to also ask you real quick before we wrap it up, Waters of the U.S., here we are still uh, debating this, and I know that the agriculture not happy with what the Biden administration is proposing for it. What's the latest? Where do we stand? Well, the Supreme Court decision clearly has put us in a whole different realm. You know, they've, they've kind of bookended that original decision back in 2008 that started a lot of this, this issue. And, and, and so the, the, the Army Corps of Engineers and EPA now have some uh, pretty, pretty important decisions in front of them. Our preference would have been for them to withdraw that rule and, and go back to the drawing board, given the fact that it's, it's not implementable based on what the Supreme Court has said. Um, they, they haven't done that. Instead, what they've said is that they're going to take this rule and tweak some things to it and push it back out again before the end of this year in the form of a final rule. So uh, sort of indicating that they, they, they designed this rule knowing they might lose in the Supreme Court and, and uh, kind of built it to lop some pieces off if need be in order to make it comply with the, with the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, we believe they're in the middle of that process now. Um, we're still in federal court pushing for a vacature of this rule, uh, and, and uh, that's what we believe should happen, because they just kind of push this thing away and, and start over again, given this new information from the Supreme Court. But they don't seem to be taking that advice, so we'll, uh, we'll wait and see uh, what they're able to get out before the end of the year while we'll continue our court process. Yep, the battle continues. Ethan, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you, Mike. Take care. Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, from the Beef Industry Summer Meeting going on in San Diego. All right, up next, we'll talk biofuels with Donnell Rehagen with the Clean Fuels Alliance America. That's coming up next. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us. This is AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. As a farmer, I want a cooperative that's there for me. Not the other way around. A local co-op that works for me and works with CHS. To connect me with local experts I know and trust. And put a global network of markets and supply at my fingertips. A co-op that's here to help us. Own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. 
Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. There are a ton of social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the U.S., 22 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant, most of them for kidneys. If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. MatchingDonors.com. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. And welcome back. Mike Adams sitting in for the rest of this week here on AOA before Jesse Allen takes over as the new host starting on Monday. Well, glad to be joined now by a good friend, Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the Clean Fuels Alliance America. Donnell, good to talk with you again. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, Mike. Good to talk to you as well. Well, plenty to talk about with biofuels. And before we get into the, the issues and the challenges that continue uh, that you continue to work on, uh, kind of give me a state of the, the biodiesel industry. Where are you right now, do you think? Are you in a good place or not? Yeah, you know, I really feel like we're in a good, good place. Uh, you know, we've talked about it here. Some of us at Clean Fuels have been at this, and some of the producers in the industry have been at this for 20, over 20 years. And it just seems like it's a time now in the country where the push for decarbonization is really raising the awareness of our fuels. Uh, and so our, our producers are getting more uh, contacts from customers, and there's markets starting to open up that uh, we were having a hard time accessing a few years ago. So uh, we're feeling really good about the opportunities in front of us. You know, I think back to when this administration came into power, we knew there was going to be a push for electric vehicles, and we've certainly seen that. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, acknowledging the place and the role that renewable fuels um would provide and could provide right now immediately didn't have to develop technology it was already here do you feel that you're getting a fair shake or not or do you feel you're just kind of being pushed aside uh, in this push towards electric vehicles well that that's part of the role of, of our organizations to make sure that our message doesn't get lost there's certainly a big strong push for electrification uh, and we as an industry support that we acknowledge though that there's also a lot of platforms of uh, heavy-duty equipment and, and other uh, markets that are just not going to be that suitable for electrification. So we continue to uh, share the message. You know, our tagline is better, cleaner now, and that speaks volumes, I think, about all of our fuels, all of our fuels, biodiesel, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel. They're here now, so decarbonization can literally start tomorrow. Do you feel that you get the credit the industry gets the credit it should for the environmental benefits that you provide. 
Mike, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure that everybody understands that, you know, or, or understands what role and how significant the role is that we play. And not just that we can play, but that we are playing. I mean, we are currently uh, almost half of the diesel pool in California is made up of biodiesel and renewable diesel. There's over 2 billion gallons now of our fuels flowing into the state of California, all because they want to decarbonize. And so it, it's already happening. It's just a matter of, it be, of everyone being more aware of it if, in fact, that's a mission that companies and fleets and governments you know, seek to have. I recently read that about California being a big user. Uh, of the biofuels and biodiesel and the different forms. And I thought, well, that's significant because we usually think of California as a state that's going to be pushing for these other types of vehicles, whether it's electric or whatever, or some green movement going on. The fact that they're using your product does say a lot, doesn't it? It sure does. I mean, they've, they set out in the early 2000s to, uh, with some very strong decarbonization goals, carbon reduction goals for their entire state. And I think what they found is what other folks are starting to learn now is you can't just seek one solution. Electrification in and of itself is not going to get you there, certainly not going to get you there anytime soon. And so they have fully embraced uh, the fuels that we can bring to the marketplace. In fact, most of the reductions that they're seeing right now on the carbon reduction front is coming from our fuels. It's not coming from electric vehicles or electrification. Talking with Donnell Rehagen, CEO of Clean Fuels Alliance America. You mentioned aviation fuel. Now, this seems to hold a lot of potential for the biofuels industry. Where are we in this, and what are the challenges you face? Well, things are really getting underway. The IRA bill, Inflation Reduction Act bill last fall, included the first ever sustainable aviation fuel tax credit. And so uh, producers of those fuels and those who could produce those fuels you know, are taking a much stronger look at it. The airlines are extremely interested in it. Uh, I think a lot of consumers are interested in seeing the decarbonization and airline travel happen as well. And so I think there's just a lot of folks that are just getting into exploring the possibilities. It's not, uh, it's not an easy road to hoe. It's certainly not uh, cheap to get into producing sustainable aviation fuel. And so there's some financial decisions, I'm sure, that are being looked at as we speak about changing some of the productions into uh, sustainable aviation fuels. Do you think it's going to be a big boon to your industry? I do. I do think it will. I mean, we're, we're excited about a lot of markets that are emerging for us, and SAF being one of them, but the rail market, the marine market are, are markets that we were having a hard time cracking a few years ago, but they, they find themselves in the same spot that the airlines are. How do I decarbonize these heavy-duty engines, you know, uh, locomotive engines or uh, engines that are powering these vessels across the oceans? And, and uh, if you want to do it and you want to do it now, our fuels are certainly uh, the best solution for that. And so we're excited about all of these markets emerging, as well as the markets that we've enjoyed for a long time in on-the-road markets, so semi-trucks and that, but also heating oil up in the Northeast. So we're just seeing a number of markets coming together at the same time, wanting more of our fuels, and we're excited about that. With You mentioned bioheat, which has been big for you, especially in the Northeast. With these new proposed regulations on appliances that we're hearing about from this administration, is that going to hurt your efforts and the progress you've made in that market? Well, it certainly could, and there's also efforts at the state level in many cases. Uh, the states are also jumping on the bandwagon of kind of wanting to get out of the fossil fuel business and feeling like electrification is the best solution. But many of us in the Midwest who have access to other heating sources know what the folks in the Northeast know as well, that electric heat isn't always the best solution whenever you're talking about extremely cold temperatures. So there's a lot of, a lot of consumers there that would really rather keep the heating appliances they have, and, and that's why we're helping them to have a better option than the standard heating oil being a cleaner product with a blended biodiesel fuel for in the, in the form of bioheat. Donnell, where are you? Where is the industry on, on the production side right now? Production continues to expand and grow. Biodiesel is holding very strong. Um, uh, renewable diesel is really where the expansion is happening. I think we're, we'll expect, let's say, over the next 12 months or so to probably add around another billion gallons of renewable diesel production. And then the 18 months after that, maybe about another billion gallons of renewable diesel production there. So production capacity is growing 
uh, very quickly as well. And like I said, demands for all of our fuels are growing, so we're pretty excited. Will that mean new facilities or expansion of old ones or both? Um, it's a little of both, but it's mostly um, in the renewable diesel front. A lot of it is uh, repurposing of smaller uh, oil refineries. So the Exxons, the, uh, the Marathons, the Phillips 66s of the world are picking some of their smaller, maybe most least efficient uh, oil refineries and converting them to make renewable diesel. There are some greenfield uh, plants that have been popping up as well, and certainly in the form of sustainable aviation fuel, we're seeing that as well. What about feedstocks? I know you use a lot of soybean, soybean oil. Are you, are you expanding, though, into more and more other products? Well, you know, the, the other products that we use outside of soybean oil, soybean oil is still by and far the largest uh, provider of feedstocks to our industry and always will be. Uh, but when you look at animal fats, use cooking oil, and distillers corn oil from ethanol, there's some limits on how much more of that we can actually get. So there's a lot of efforts underway to aggregate more of those other feedstocks, but we're also seeing a, a huge expansion in soybean crush, and we're excited to play a part in, in making that happen. The demand for the oil from increasing more of our homegrown soybeans here in the United States, our demand for that oil is one of the factors in the investments in those plants. I think we're expecting about a 30% expansion in soybean crush over the next four or five years. Probably the biggest thing that's happened to soybeans, you know, in 30 years. So we're excited about that. So soybean oil will continue to play a vital role in us uh, decarbonizing our transportation fuels here in the United States. That's good to hear. And it sounds like even with the challenges that uh, uh, you're pretty excited about about the future. I am, Mike. You know, I've I've been doing this for it'll be 19 years next month, and uh, we talk about a little bit in the office. Some of us have been around a while. It's like this is sort of the time we've always hoped we would find where the demand for our fuels is being driven, you know, not just by us, by us promoting it, but by by markets that are seeking our products. And it certainly makes those conversations more enjoyable and makes them uh, more frequent as well. Good to talk with you again, Donnell. Take care. Yeah, Mike. Hey, appreciate it. Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the Clean Fuels Alliance America. Lots to talk about next with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. This is Jesse Allen, Farmer Ranch Director for the American Ag Network. Listeners know they can depend on their favorite radio station for the latest news, weather, markets, community events, and more. In fact, AM radio is the backbone of America with 80 million people tuning in each month to listen. And in an emergency, radio is there to help keep you safe in dangerous situations. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com and tell us why, and you will have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. You're listening to AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Risfet with this market update. Well, ahead of this afternoon's Fed announcement, grains are mixed. Corn is down a couple of pennies. Beans are up a couple of pennies, while wheat is sharply lower, led by Kansas City. Fed fund futures trading is putting a 99% odds of the Federal Reserve raising its benchmark interest rate by 25 basis points today with the other 1% betting on a 50 basis point rate hike. That's been the sentiment for some weeks now, and we are seeing a shift toward more of a hawkish sentiment for another rate hike in November. This, however, hasn't halted the upward trend for stocks. Two things we'll be looking for this afternoon is, will the Fed continue to emphasize the need to keep rates higher for longer going forward? And second, will the Fed acknowledge the risk at hand for commodity inflation as seen in recent moves in the energy and food-based commodity markets? 
There's British intelligence that Russia may be planning attacks on civilian ships, along with reports that Russia is placing additional mines near Ukrainian waters. However, overnight it was another relatively quiet night on the Ukraine front. The European Ag Commissioner is committing Europe to developing land-based solidarity lines for exporting Ukraine grain and oil seeds with freight subsidized by the EU. This will be easier said than done, but the EU does appear committed to making it happen with the goal of reaching 4.5 million metric tons of exports per month down the road. A little closer to home, ridge-running storms will continue to provide unexpected moisture for portions of the Midwest on an almost daily basis. The rains are welcome, although they're not sufficient to keep the Midwest as a whole sufficiently watered to deal with this week's intense heat, especially in areas west of the Mississippi River. The good news is that the high-pressure ridge does begin to break down next week, allowing temps to moderate and rainfall to again increase. The VIX is trading near 14 today, while the dollar and crude oil are both trading lower. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. All right, in case you're just tuning in, I'm Mike Adams. And if you're wondering why am I on here, it's because um, we're I'm going to fill in the rest of the week before Jesse Allen takes over as the new host of AOA coming up on Monday. And as I said earlier, I wish Mike Pearson the very best, and I'm sure he's going to do very well in his new position and uh, really looking forward to hearing Jesse Allen as the host of AOA. I know he'll do a great job, and uh, congratulations to Jesse on, on being the chosen the next host here on AOA. So I get to talk with a lot of folks uh, the rest of this week, and mostly I'm thankful to be able to talk with all of you listening to AOA. And I always enjoyed conversations over the years I've had with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX, and he joins us now. Arlen, how are you? Doing well, Mike. It's good to talk to you again, and it seems like every time we talk, something exciting's going on. <laughs> it does indeed seem so. I, I was, I've been thinking about you as I watched the news about Ukraine and uh, the export situation, getting grain out of there, and um, wanted to get your thoughts. So, what's the latest you're hearing on that? Yeah, there's there's been a, I've been getting a lot of calls saying the markets are kind of schizophrenic. Why are they behaving the way that they are with what's happening in Ukraine? And and it really comes down to this. We're not running out of wheat or corn right now in the world market. There is ample supplies of wheat and corn in the world market today because Russia had a really big wheat crop a year ago that they're still trying to export even as they harvest this year's crop. So they're dumping a lot of cheap wheat on the world market. And Brazil's harvesting a record corn crop that's dumped on the world market right now. So when the market rallied sharply, it wasn't because, oh no, we don't have enough wheat or corn right now. It is things are escalating. This could create problems for the future and the speculative funds who had big speculative short or sold positions in corn and the wheat market saying, I'm not comfortable in those short positions. I got to get out of those short positions. And so they've been doing that. But there's still a lot of uncertainty about the future, namely when Russia starts bombing Ukraine's export infrastructure, that creates a longer term risk. 
frankly, Ukraine still is one of the major exporters of the world for corn and wheat. And so you have to respect the fact that down the road, their grain may not be available to the world market. And if their farmers can't export it, they'll lose a lot of incentive to even plant it. And you can really set back a major production in the center in the world from that standpoint. And so that's why the market's a little bit schizophrenic, trying to factor that in. Now, that's more of a factor for corn and wheat. Soybeans has kind of its own fundamentals as well that's based on supply and demand and decreased acreage here in the United States and weather, etc. But that's why we've been seeing this volatility in the corn and wheat market. So it's a long-term, short-term situation. Longer term, there could be a lot of potential harm here, especially uh, if they start, you said, talk about infrastructure. If they start bombing uh, railroad railroad lines and things like that, that has a longer-term impact, doesn't it? it? It really does. And Russia seems committed to trying to prevent Ukraine from being an exporter of grain. Now, I still say the biggest risk to this market that would be a real game-changer would be if Ukraine would start retaliating against Russia in a way that would stop or slow down shipments of oil and wheat coming out of Russia. That would be a total game changer uh, for the commodity markets and for fighting inflation in the United States for that matter. Keep in mind that about 40% of Russia's wheat goes through the Kerch Strait. That's where that big 12-mile bridge is that uh, Ukraine has attacked a couple of times. So there is a vulnerability there. Uh, There would be some price to be paid from the standpoint of world opinion if Ukraine did that. But that's a possibility as well if shippers no longer felt comfortable handling Russian grain or oil. And that could really ignite these markets. I don't know what the risk of that actually happening is. It's probably relatively low. But if it did happen, as I said, that would be a game changer. So a lot to watch there. We're talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX. You talked about fighting inflation. We're very much watching what the Fed does, right? That's going to have a big impact. It really is, and I'm going to be watching to see if they recognize this new risk in the commodity sector. We brought the headline uh, consumer price index number down to 3% last month, and that's getting a lot closer to their 2% mandate. Now, that final percent is a lot harder to uh, cover than what it was getting to this point, and one of the reasons we got to this point is we've been seeing deflation in commodity prices over much of the last year as the funds have been deleveraging themselves from the commodity sector. We can track it in the CFTC data on a weekly basis. That is, Fed's been raising rates. They've been pulling money out of the commodities, fearing recession that would uh, reduce demand for commodities. But that's changing right now. And one of the biggest indicators, as I've been saying for the past several months, watch the crude oil market. To me, that's going to be the leading indicator. In the crude oil market, after several failed attempts, has now broken above the 200-day moving average on the charts. That's that's a significant shift in sentiment in the energy markets going forward, where we're no longer worried about demand erosion, leaving us with a surplus of supply, but now it's uh, demand growth faster than what we have supply. We're tipping over the balance sheet in the other direction now. We're worried about not having enough supply. And so the market sentiment is shifting. That also has implications for money flowing to the grain and oil seeds as well. After a lot of talk about a pending recession, some economists have kind of backed off that, taken that off the table. Is that still a threat? Are you concerned about that? I am, because the Fed has stated that one of their concerns, and I think rightly so, is wage inflation. And during the pandemic, we saw about 4.5 million people retire early because the stock market was doing so well, their 401ks are doing so well, so they just they left the workforce. There's many other people who left the workforce because of various programs um, that were paying them uh, money to not have to work. And so that combination has really shrank the workforce. So now as we try to fight wage inflation, which is a key component of the overall inflation, uh, we have basically 1.6 
open job positions in America for every person looking for a job. So that means employers having to bid against each other to get that employee. And so as long as that is the case, we have this imbalance between the number of workers and the number of open positions, we're going to have wage inflation. The only way to fix that, that the Fed has, it can't increase the supply of workers. Only thing it can do is try to slow down the economy to bring them into balance. So I do think that they have to take us into a recession. It doesn't necessarily have to be a sharp recession, but at least a mild recession in order to do that. So I do think there's more pain. That doesn't necessarily mean we need higher interest rates, but it probably means we need interest rates for higher rates for longer than what the markets currently think in order to accomplish that. That sounds risky, trying to manage Mm-hmm. A mild, a mild recession, and try to keep it that you know, not let it get worse than that. I, that sounds pretty risky to me. Absolutely. Well, this whole experiment about quantitative easing that Ben Bernanke started as he copied what the Japanese had done, and it's been an utter failure for the Japanese, but he copied it in 2008 and 2009, and we just kind of built on it. Other central banks then copied it as well. We've created a big problem. It's very difficult to get out of in the former chairman, now two chairmen's back, uh, the Kansas City Federal Reserve, Ken Honig, has said, I'm not sure how they're going to go through this, how they're going to unwind all of this, because they've created quite a mess for themselves. Uh, before I let you go, your thoughts on where we are production-wise. Uh, plenty of weather challenges across uh, across the country. Some areas uh, obviously doing better than others. What, what are your overall thoughts on, on this year's crop? Yeah, as a former agronomist, this is going to be the year when we have areas of the Midwest that look great from the road. You walk into the fields and you're going to find very stubby corn ears or lack of pods on the beans and the the yield's not going to be there. You're going to have areas that don't look all that great. You walk in the field and you're going to be impressed with how good they they are yielding. Um, And so it's going to, I think there's going to be a lot of jumping around of yield estimates here over the next 45 days as we try to nail this down. Right now I feel real good in my gut from being a former agronomist walking fields with soybeans somewhere around that 50 bushel range, which means a very tight balance sheet. Uh, On corn, I feel real good right now about a a 175 to a 177. I think we're probably somewhere in that range due to, unfortunately, very weak export demand and, uh, you know, we're lack of cattle to feed over the next year and also we're also shrinking the the breeding herd for hogs as well um that's going to make it tough on corn we could drop that yield below 170 and still be growing supplies in the year ahead so corn has some leeway there for lower yield soybeans do not that needs to be our real concern going forward need a good month of august that's really a make or break time for those soybeans it does, and that would be crucial for the corn crop as well. We know that the June may have limited the girth of the ear in some areas, and so what we need to be able to do is make it up with depth as kernel as much as we can. And we can't make it all up, but we can make up a, a fair amount there with depth of kernel if we have a favorable August for corn filling as well. Arlen, always good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX. Arlen referred to those lower cattle numbers. We're going to talk about that with our next guest, Dr. Darrell Peel from Oklahoma State University. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together this is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts hi i'm gary sinise since 2011 the gary sinise foundation's serving heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic american meals at travel hubs and military locations 
And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Corn is native to the American continent and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder, being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer Camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
All right, Mike Adams sitting in for the rest of this week here on AOA. Jesse Allen takes over on Monday. I'm going to talk about the, the cattle industry now with Dr. Daryl Peel from Oklahoma State University. Dr. Peel, always good to talk with you. These these cattle numbers uh, are really kind of shockingly low, although I say shockingly, we realize the many of the factors causing them to be that low. What are your thoughts about this level we're at right now? You know, uh, the report itself, uh, the mid-year inventory report, as well as the cattle on feed report, were pretty well anticipated. Uh, you know, there was bigger placements in the cattle on feed number, but the the fact that the the report was down was not a surprise. But when you look at it in a, in a, in a bigger sense, uh, we are at extremely tight levels, particularly when you sort of ferret out where we are with heifers and the potential to turn this thing around and stop getting smaller and think about uh, rebuilding this herd. The numbers of heifers available is extremely limited right now. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You don't turn it around just overnight, and with those factors, you talk about the heifers, uh, it would seemingly take maybe even longer than we uh, would think. And how do you see that? What's the runway here for bringing this herd back? You know, it's it's a longer runway this time. I think it's a substantially different situation than we saw in 2014. The last time we bottomed, we put together a fairly quick herd expansion uh, from 2014 to 2019. I don't think we can do that again because the pipeline of available uh, replacement heifers is small uh, and just the general availability of heifers. Um, you know, the number of heifers on feed in the cattle in the, the cattle inventory or the cattle on feed report uh, was equal to last year. And so if you take the other heifer inventory out of the, the mid-year report and subtract off the ones that are already in the feedlot, the residual supply heifers that we could breed is the lowest it's ever been in, in so, the data series. Yeah, so you look at that scenario that you just described. I mean, if, if you can stay in that, uh, you can see higher prices. But for, for the long-term impact on the industry, what do you see? Well, again, I think the timeline here for rebuilding, you know, at, at some point we've got to have some indication that producers are trying to rebuild. We don't have any data now that suggests we're even attempting to retain heifers. But assuming we do that, I think most of that's going to start with this year's weaning heifer calves. So if you pencil that out, you you know, you save a weaned heifer this fall, you can breed her in 24, she calves in 25. That calf comes out of the feedlot and becomes more beef production in 26. It's a fairly extended timeline that we're on here before we can really turn this thing around. Then you have all the factors involved, uh, weather, you know, feed availability, feed price. I mean, there there are a lot of factors that go into uh, the willingness and the eagerness of producers to to get back in. That's exactly right. I think they're proceeding with a little bit of caution, and and that's very understandable. There's a number of reasons why it's taking uh, a little longer to get started. Uh, the cost of production across the board, uh, along with interest rates, are substantially different than they were the last time we did this. We're we're coming out of a drought. A lot of producers are still trying to, uh, you know, heal up their resources as well as their financial situation coming out of the drought. Uh, so for all of those reasons, I think we're moving pretty cautiously. And the upshot of it is the market is going to continue to offer calf prices in particular because that cow-calf sector is the focus here. We're going to continue to offer prices uh, that provide incentives eventually for, uh, for the cow-calf producers to make that investment in future production. We're talking with Dr. Darrell Peel at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Peel, in the meantime, while we're at this phase and this this stage of the lower levels of the cattle industry, the cattle numbers, is it opening a door for these uh, competitive products, these uh, uh, imitation meat products, cell or plant-based? Is that opening an oppor- creating an opportunity for them? Well, certainly beef production is beginning to fall in 2023. We had record beef production in 2022 because we were eating inventory, but that process has already turned around. So there will be less beef available. Beef is expensive in a relative sense already, and it's going to get more expensive as we tighten up supply. So in some sense, yeah, there's an opportunity for any sort of competing protein or competing alternative protein or whatever. But does this really represent kind of a a sea change in terms of those overall markets? I really don't think so. Um, You know, we're going to go through a period here of tighter supplies and and some price rationing as uh, as needed to uh, balance things out. But I don't think this probably uh, ultimately means that beef won't recover from this. And and beef demand has been remarkably strong for many months and continues to be at this point in time. I wanted to ask you about that because over the years we've seen higher 
prices, retail prices, uh, caused some consumers to cut back in tough economic times, but we haven't really seen much erosion of demand at all? You know, the latest retail prices we have for the month of June were actually at a record level. They continued to go up. Uh, so, you know, from that standpoint, uh, you know, we're, we're again, we're, we're holding up very well. If you look within, you know, the complex of beef products, uh, I follow the wholesale markets pretty closely. And you do see some difference between the very top-end products. So tenderloin demand is probably kind of flat. Uh, but it's not eroding. Um, same thing for ribeyes, but you look at some of the mid-level steak products, and they've actually had very strong demand, certainly going into the summer uh, for our grilling season here. Strip loins and sirloin and tri-tips and those kind of things have actually been uh, very strong. Flank steak has been very strong this week, this year. And I think that probably reflects not only grilling season, seasonal demand, but probably some uh, some change in consumer behavior, but it's still favoring steaks. We're not uh, We're not trading away from beef products at this point. Sounds good to me. Let's keep eating them, right? And uh, hopefully we <laughs> create a, a better environment for producers to increase those herd sizes. All right. Thanks a lot, Daryl. Good to talk with you. Nice to visit with you, too. Take care. Dr. Daryl Peel from Oklahoma State University. All right. That's going to wrap it up for today. We have another busy program coming up tomorrow. We're going to talk some dairy industry issues with the National Milk Producers Federation. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, meat exports tomorrow. Uh, Dan Hallstrom with the U.S. Meat Export Federation will be joining us. United Soybean Board making decisions on what uh, projects they're going to be funding. We'll talk with the chair of the United Soybean Board, Megan Kaiser, coming up on tomorrow's program. And more on these wild markets. We'll be talking with Naomi Bloom with Total Farm Marketing. Well, that wraps it up for today. I'm Mike Adams sitting in for the rest of this week for Jesse Allen, who will be taking over on Monday. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you'll be back with us tomorrow. Have a great day, everyone. This is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite.